At this time, I would love for you to imagine that you are somehow magically transported back in time. You find yourself magically transported back in time, and you find yourself on an ocean-going sea vessel, a massive ocean liner that is transporting you across the Atlantic Ocean, and it's late at night, and there you are on the boat, and suddenly you realize that the ship is rammed smack into an iceberg. And the iceberg tears into the hull of the ship, and in panic, you look on the side of the boat, and you realize that the name is the Titanic. Now, if you know the story, you know that the Titanic ultimately sinks with the loss of an incredible number of lives. Knowing that future, you know what your job is. Your job is to get people off that boat. Your job is to help people get off the boat. Unless, on the other hand, you look on the side of the boat and you don't see that it's a Titanic, you rather see that it says the Queen Elizabeth II. Then you remember, perhaps, that in the 1990s, the Queen Elizabeth II, as it was crossing the Atlantic, ran into an iceberg late at night, and through the valiant efforts of the crew and some of the passengers, the boat was made it very safely to port with absolutely zero loss of life. In which case, knowing the future of what happens to the QE2, you know that your job is entirely different, not to get people into the lifeboats, but rather to help save the boat. Knowing the future completely changes the actions in which you take and in what you do. Knowing the future changes your actions along those lines. Today, we're continuing on with the Essential Series. This is a foundational principle that guides our actions. In other words, this is something not just that we firmly believe in our minds, recognize that Scripture speaks of it, but we also recognize that it is something that shapes and molds the way in which we live our daily lives. We believe that Jesus Christ will come again, visibly and bodily, to judge the living and the dead, and to consummate all of history and God's eternal plan. In other words, what we're saying is, we know the future. We know this part of the future. We know that Christ is going to come again, visibly and bodily, to judge the living and the dead, to consummate all of history and God's eternal plan. The Lord will come, and he will come in glory. And knowing that future changes dramatically the way you live your actions, just as dramatically as knowing the difference between what happens to the Titanic and what happens to QE2. One of the things in which we are going to be asserting and asserting strongly throughout this day, and it was captured by the text that Dan read for us so wonderfully today, is that understanding that because of God's grace, because of God's communication with us, he has informed us of some things that are ahead for us. And because we know of those things, not only do we hold firmly to them and believe them, but we also believe that they radically shape our actions. And not just our actions. I've told this story before, so pardon me if you've heard it before, but it was obviously something that very dramatically shaped my life since I have used it a couple of times. I was watching a horror movie back in the early 80s. Uh, I don't know why I was bothering with a horror movie, but I was watching this horror movie, 
and it was very suspenseful, it was very gut-wrenching, it, it was very well done in terms of making me very scared, but I knew that the main actor was going to survive the movie. He was going to survive the movie because he was the main actor. So I put my confidence in that, and while I was nevertheless scared by the movie, it was a dramatic telling, I felt really confident that nothing ultimately was gonna, bad was ultimately going to happen to the main character because he was the main character. And then, of course, the director pulled a fast one on me, and about two-thirds through the movie, he killed off the monster, got the, the main character. And I have to tell you, I spent the last third of that movie absolutely terrified. I was terrified because I knew what the future held, and I was comfortable with it. I knew what the future held, until suddenly I didn't. And then my whole attitude, my whole engagement with the movie, everything around me changed and shifted in my attitude because suddenly what I thought I knew about the future was incredibly wrong. We look to the scriptures, we study the scriptures, and the scriptures portray for us God's promises about the future. This is what the future holds. This is what the future looks like. And because of that, our actions are different. But also, our attitude is different. And so we come before the scriptures to see what it is that the Lord has laid forward for us in the future. Not just because we want to hold on to that, like that that is an essential and important part of our understanding. It is. But because by making it, giving it to us, the Lord expects us to act differently and to think differently. And I encourage you to do so as we look through this text together. If you are able, please stand as we hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do, of course, again, give you thanks. But more than that, Lord, we pray that you would use this word to change our actions and our attitudes now and forevermore, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Of course, the future is laid before us by the Lord, and we trust the Lord in that future, but only to the extent that he determines and decides to lay it forward before us. That's an important concept and a hard one for us very often to embrace. Uh, a number of years ago, when our kids were little, we were down visiting my parents down in Florida, and we decided to take a day trip to Disney. And of course, we told the kids, hey, we're going to take a day trip to Disney. 
And suddenly there was a flood of questions. When are we going? What time will we get there? What's going to be our first ride? How much food are we allowed to eat? Are we going to meet Mickey Mouse? You know, all of these, they just were flooded full with all these questions. I wasn't ready, prepared to tell them all those answers, to give them all those answers. I may not have known all the answers to those questions, but that was okay. I wanted them to be eager and excited, they certainly were, about what I had promised, what I had told them would come, even if they do not know all of the answers, even though not knowing for sure everything doesn't mean that you can't take confidence in what we do know. And so we look to the scriptures for confidence of what God has revealed, recognizing that there is a whole lot that is laid before us. The future is in God's hands. It is a a, a great peril, a great retreat, a, a great infringement upon his divinity to assume that we can dictate the future. It is God that determines the future. But he has, in his providence, in his goodness and mercy, chosen to reveal some things to us. Not every question that we want. One of the primary ones that we are not told that Dan stressed when he was before us here is that we are specifically not told when these things will take place. And of course, that's the primary question that everybody comes to when we talk about the second coming, when we talk about the end of the world. Everybody wants to know, well, when is that happening? God has made it clear that that is not something for us to know. But that doesn't mean we don't know anything. We know a lot. We know what God has revealed in the scriptures. And I want to take time to look at that today. By the way, we operate today with an understanding of time, with a, with a view of the world that changes very dramatically the way that you would look at a passage of scripture like this. So much of the world uh, throughout history has had a different view of time than we do. We understand God created the world, he began time, and that there will be an end to time. We think very clearly in terms of that linear progression of time from beginning to end. Much of the world and much of history hasn't thought of the time that way. They haven't thought of a beginning. They haven't thought of an end. And so part of the Christian message to the world has been to help them see that there is a beginning, that there is an end. That is more built into our worldview that's not as as surprising to most people in the 21st (laughs) century and Western world. We tend to think in terms of beginning and end. But there is still so much in this text that we need to understand and embrace. And it begins right off the bat at the beginning in verse 13 where Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed. Now, that should stop you right there a little bit. Paul says we don't want you to be uninformed, the implication being that there are so many people who are uninformed. And I should tell you that as somebody that works closely with people and gets to talk with you about your faith very often, so many of us are radically uninformed about basic understandings of what the Lord has in store for us in the future. We know these things not because we are looking through a crystal ball or we're consulting a medium or a spiritualist or something. It's because we're reading the scriptures. So many of us are uninformed about something that Paul explicitly says here. We don't want you to be uninformed. It's crucial not to be uninformed about this. How do you get informed about this? You listen to sermons, okay, you read books. You read the scripture. 
It is Scripture where the Lord speaks to us and tells us these very things that we are not to be uninformed about. What are we not supposed to be uninformed about? We do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Uh, my guess is that most of you quickly grabbed a hold of this. This is a euthanism. This is just Paul speaking in, around the, the corner to talk about those who are, have died. So the concern is, from the Thessalonians, is the concern is that we've, we've heard the gospel message, we have heard that Jesus saves us, we've heard that Jesus saves us from the dead, and yet so many of our people who are good, solid Christians are dying. And Paul says, wait, you're, you're missing the, you know, and they're sitting there saying, are these people not Christians, that they died? Because the promise of the gospel is that we're now, we will never die, that there will be eternal life. So how do we understand the fact that some in our midst are dying? And the Thessalonian church was confused, and they wrote to Paul, and they said, why is it that some people are dying if we have the promise of eternal life? And Paul says, wait, you, you, you misunderstand some fundamental things about the future that God has laid out for us, that the Lord has told us about. And so he says, let me tell you about those who are falling asleep. And, the fir- and then the reasoning here is the end of verse 13. So that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Why is it that Paul wants us to be informed about what is coming in the future? Paul wants us to be informed about what is coming in the future so we will not grieve as those who have no hope. Now, I've been around plenty of families, and I've been in, had death situation in my own family. I know what it's like to grieve the loss of a loved one. And Paul here is not telling us that if you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, you won't grieve. That's not what this text says. This text explicitly says that we will not grieve as others do who have no hope. Believers are to grieve. We recognize the the essence, the, the, the essential character to some extent of grief when we are surrounded by death, we grieve, we feel sorrow for the loss of loved ones. Believers do, and we are supposed to. But we are supposed to grieve as men and women, as a body who have hope in the coming. But so many of us are uninformed, Paul says, about what is coming, and consequently our grief looks no different than others who are grieving. And I'm not just talking here about nice platitudes. Many of us have gone to funerals and we've been in situations where you've been comforting grieving families and it's really hard not to say something like, well, they're in a better place or, you know, they're with God now or with a... All of which may or may not be true depending on the person. But that's not what Paul is encouraging. Paul's not saying, hey, you know, say that with conviction. We say that with conviction as Christians. We are able to look at one another and say, hey, here is a loss of a loved one, but they're a brother or sister in the Lord, and so we know with confidence what? We know with confidence the first promise that we hear from the Lord about the future is his coming. 
Our Lord is coming, and he is coming in glory, and he is coming in power. This is captured very nicely for us in uh, verse 34, uh, or verse 14, sorry. For, though, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Listen to what Paul does there. He ties together belief in Christ's death and resurrection with his future coming. He links those together. Just as we believe that Christ died for us, just as we believe that Christ rose again from the dead, so also we are to believe that Christ is coming again in the future. Uh, one of the things about learning to drive a car is that you have to learn to do a bunch of different things at once. You've got to learn the brake, you've got to learn the gas pedal, you've got to learn how to steer, you've got to learn how to look through your mirrors and all that kind of stuff. Which one's most important? Well, if you don't know the brake, you're in a lot of trouble, I guess. Uh, but if you don't know the gas pedal, it's kind of useless. If you can't steer, you're in a lot of trouble. If you don't know where you are with your mirrors, you're in a lot of What's most? I don't know. The reality is they all go together. And in Paul, what Paul's saying here is that these all go together. Belief in his death. Belief in his resurrection. Belief in his coming again in glory and in power. All of these things are linked together. And we need to understand them together. The fact that we have a passion, I have a passion for the death of Christ. Because it is there that I see my sin taken upon the Lord and paid for, realizing then that that burden is not upon me. Believe me, I get excited about that. I know believers that are incredibly passionate about the resurrection of our, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That promise that death will not hold us. Death will not ultimately win. That's a great victory song for us as Christians. I don't know enough people that are passionate about the second coming of our Lord. Sure, we're grateful that ultimately time will end, that, that he is coming, but I don't see that same link as the passion for the cross, as the passion for the empty tomb, as the passion for the second coming of the Lord, and yet Paul here clearly links them together. Look, if you can, at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet. Paul's coming up with images, pictures here. How do I say how glorious it is that Christ is coming again? How do I articulate it in a way that you can picture it, that you can imagine it, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet? He is trying to say, don't be fooled. Christ came in humility. Christ came in weakness. Christ came submitting himself to this world. Christ came to redeem us through his death. And what could be more beautiful than that? Well, possibly when Christ comes in glory, when Christ comes in power, when Christ comes to reign, when Christ comes to rule this world in all of his beauty and all of his majesty and all of his glory. Paul wants us to understand not just the humility of Christ, but also his glory and his majesty of Christ, and that they are held together by those of us who hold passionately to the Lord. Why? Because it radically shapes and changes the way you live your life. It radically shapes and changes your attitude in life so that we can grieve with death. We can grieve with those who mourn, but we do so not as those who do not have hope, 
but rather we grieve with those who are in mourning and we do so confident and expressing that hope and that promise of our Lord because he is coming again. Secondly, what we see is not only will he come again, but at the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise again. There is a promise of the future resurrection that what death has torn asunder, your body and your soul, will be reunited again in the face of the Lord. It is not just that your spirit is perfected, but it is that your body and your soul, your spirit, are joined together again, and you once again become what God created you originally to be, his human being, child of God, fully human in his sight. What will our bodies look like? Will I be thin finally? Will I, will I be more muscular? Um, will I be able to walk through walls? What age will I be at? What will it look? None of those things we are told. There are some hints here and there in the scripture, but we're not told what they are. What we are told is that there will be a resurrection to the end. And that is what Paul focuses on and he is so excited about, the resurrection from the dead. This particular text doesn't speak of the final judgment necessarily, but we know that after the return of Christ and after the resurrection of the dead, that there will be a time of eternal judgment. And this final judgment will be exactly what it sounds like, a time where we will come before the Lord and account for our lives. There are those who want to believe that as Christians we will escape that, but the scriptures are absolutely clear that we do not. As a matter of fact, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. What Christians escape is the condemnation that comes with that judgment. The Lord will look at my life and he will see that which pleases him and he will see that which displeases him and that which pleases him will bring him pleasure. And that which displeases him has been paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ for those of us who embrace the Lord as our Savior. And there are so many, so many, who will go through that judgment without that blessing. Who will go through that judgment whose good things will please the Lord and whose bad things will bring to an eternal condemnation. For the last thing that this text hints at is, of course, that eternal life. At the end of verse 17, so we will be with the Lord always. So we will always be with the Lord, for there will be an eternal life for the believer and eternal suffering for the non-believer. There will be a heaven in the presence of God for the believer. And there will be a hell in the absence of all the goodness and all the blessings of God for the unbeliever. Scriptures portray such for us. And it is foundational in our actions and our attitudes, in the ways in which we live one with another. Jesus himself describes eternal life this way in John 17, a marvelous passage. 
where Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you may know God the Father, that you may know Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent to die for our sins. We can't miss this passage without the final punch in verse 18. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Realize what he's saying here. You are to encourage one another with these words. This is not an option. This is before us as believers. I have to say that I am trying desperately to remember the last time somebody came up and encouraged me with the reminder that our Lord is coming again. Our Lord is coming to reign in this world and the brokenness and the sorrow and the sin and the suffering that so surrounds me will not always be here. That the goodness, the blessings, the mercy, the grace of my God will dominate and rule all things. And Paul says, encourage one another with those words. There's certain traditions in the deep history of uh, the church that ended every worship service by saying, Maranatha, Maranatha. Maranatha is a Greekish type word, it's Aramaicish kind of thing. Maranatha, it means come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, come. 